Hello, and welcome to episode 20 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. I am Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. Carl, as you all may know, is the host of the 30 Love Tennis podcast, which is much more reliable and prolific than this one. Also, perhaps even better. This is sort of his uh, his, <laughs> his slumming around podcast um, when we get around to doing it. But this is two weeks in a row, hopefully start of a new trend, something for us all to look forward to. Tons of tennis this past week wrapping up, as well as next week coming up that I want to dig right into. And one of the biggest themes, both last week and this coming week, is surface preferences. And something that I wrote about on the Tennis Abstract blog, specifically concerning Dominic Team, who's an absolute monster on clay courts, not so great on hard courts. But I don't want to start with Dominic Team. I want to start with one of my favorite players, and I know one of yours as well, Carl, Diego Schwartzman, who just won the 500-level title in Rio de Janeiro. Um, he's building on the best year of his career in 2017. This breaks him into the top 20, which is, you know, I've always been a big Schwartzman supporter and, and thought he would be good, but I never thought he'd be this good. I never thought we'd see him in the top 20. Uh, I thought he might win a 500-level title on a clay, but the, the funny thing about Schwartzman's success over the last year or so is that he's winning matches on hard courts as well. I mean, he, he, he picked up a title in Istanbul, another final in Antwerp, I think, the year before. And the research that I did for the Dominic Well, Mark, Istanbul is clay, right? Istanbul is on hard, isn't it? We should check this. It's clay. It is clay. Well, never mind about that. It's very fast clay. Let's say that. <laughs> so, never mind. He had the... He, but he they had... Antwerp two finals in a row. Each last year and the year before, he's like dominant on indoor hard in Belgium for some reason. It is, it is a really slow court. I remember looking at that, not this past year, but the year before, and it was one of the slowest hard courts of, of the year. But still, it, it's, it's a bizarre thing. And if you look at the, the last few months of last season... Um, even through the Australian Open this year, um, he he made the U U.S. Open quarterfinals, beating Chilich last fall. He then made the semifinals in Tokyo. He um, and then at the Australian Open this year, made the round of 16. Those were all really solid hard court results. The sort of thing you'd expect from someone on the edge of the top 20, even if they're not a clay court specialist. And what this results in is that when we look at hard court and clay court results next to each other. Um, measured with the the elo system schwartzman is actually a little bit better on hard courts than on the clay courts and there's a lot of possible reasons for that i guess one is that he actually is better on hard courts but this is someone who chose to play an almost 100 percent clay court challenger schedule for a couple of years as he was coming up obviously he thinks he's more comfortable on clay courts but somehow it's worked for him on hard courts so carl my question to you is this i guess it's two questions one is is this for real? Is this something what we're going to see for Schwartzman from Schwartzman for the rest of his career? And two, do you think that his game actually works on hard courts? Is, is, is he possibly a better hard court player than a clay court player? Yes and yes and yes to all Diego things. W one point that really struck me last year, even as he had all of his great hard court results, is he would lose in tournaments to pretty good players in pretty close matches, which to me can suggest that a player's ELO might be slightly underrating them because you don't get any credit for losing, but he wasn't getting blown off the court by nobody. So 
you know, this started for me as a bit of a trend in Cincinnati where he lost to Karen Kachanov, who's a very promising young player, really good power player. Uh, lost him in his very first match in Cincy, but it was a three-setter, a really tight match. And then he goes on in Tokyo to the semis where he lost in two tiebreak sets to David Gofan, one of probably the five best players of 2017. Then he, in Shanghai, lost to one Roger Federer in a pretty tight match, 7-6-6-4, Federer being you know, the best hardcore player right now. Uh, he lost to Tsonga in a pretty tight final in Antwerp. He lost to Cole Schreiber, another very accomplished player in a tight match in Vienna, in Paris, a fast indoor hard court. He lost to John Isner, who's then ranked in the top 15 in a match where Schwartzman actually won more return points than Isner did, but just didn't win as many of the big points. So he kind of had hard luck. I mean, even you look at the Australian Open, he lost to Nadal in four sets. Nadal, who had made the final the year before, who's made a few Australian Open finals, one of the best players on hard courts in the world. And Schwartzman made that match into a battle. So I felt for a while that he's been due for an even bigger breakout on hard courts than he's had. Uh, the other factor that I, I think is underexplored, I really haven't seen anyone explain it, but which I find fascinating about the evolution of Schwartzman, Schwartzman's game. The guy is five foot seven, which is not conducive to hitting a lot of aces. You just don't have the, the angle over the net to get a lot of power and, and uh, an angle on the shot. And yet, and yet, <laughs> he's been hitting a lot of aces. I think in the Australian Open, he out-aced his opponents. Every one of his four matches at the Australian Open, his ace percentage was 7.4 or higher, which is quite respectable. He hit 11 aces on 11% of his, uh, sorry, that wasn't a completed match, but on 9% of his serves against Yari in the semis in Rio on clay. Uh, he's kind of consistently been putting up impressive ace numbers recently. Aces will never be a significant percentage still of his serves, but I think they're indicative of him really going for it on first serve. And sometimes it's power, but it's often placement, like really hitting the lines. And he, so he's actually holding serve fairly consistently now, which if you pair that with his already great return game, is making him a pretty dangerous player on hard courts. Uh, I still think he's going to have more trouble defending his serve than the average player, but he's so good once a rally gets going that if you combine that with getting more free points on the serve itself, he's going to start holding serve at a respectable rate. Yeah, that's true, and he, and he already is. The, the interesting thing to me about about just the, the structure of tennis on hard courts is that it, it's so... You can rely so much on the server just holding serve every game, and in most matches there are a few breaks of serve, but as we've discussed on this podcast before, like it, it does come down to just one or two breaks often, and it, as you point out, Schwarzman, his, his serve has gotten more solid. Uh, he'll... If, if, if the ball comes back, he's in the rally and he's favored in the rally. And one thing you can count on from Schwartzman is he will break serve. That's the one thing that sets him apart from virtually everyone else on tour, especially with, with Andy Murray sitting on the sidelines. Diego Schwartzman will break your serve. And I forget what the streak was before he, he finally didn't break John Isner's serve in Paris last fall, but I think he broke serve in every other match of 2017. He's broken serve actually at least twice in every match this year. Not not unless Sydney and Brisbane losses, but every match since the Australian Open, so about ten matches in a row. He even broke Kasparud twice 
in a match that only went five games. So he's, he's going to put himself in position to win sets. And I think a lot of players might need to get over a mental hump against him, which is the expectation that they're going to have to break serve as well. I think especially on hard courts, a lot of players go into matches thinking, I just have to, I just have to hold my own serve. As long as I do that, I'll be in good shape. And then they don't really focus in a lot of return games. And against Schwartzman, that's not going to be good enough. He will find a way to break your serve and at least push it to an extra set, like the match you point out about Kachanov or that the fourth set against Nadal. Nadal's not a great example there because obviously Nadal's going to focus hard all the time. You're not going to catch him with a, a bad mental approach to the game. But that is how he gets himself into these close matches, I think, by basically as good as, as weak as his serve can be on hard courts his return game is that much better. And he's, he's the best returner in tennis, and especially in slow, hard courts, that's going to pay off. You should uh, elaborate just for people who don't remember. Explain what you mean about best returner in tennis. Yep. Uh, I, I haven't looked lately at the, at the season-long numbers or 52-week numbers, but when I last did, I don't know that he actually had the highest percentage of return points won. Uh, but what I then do is control for opponents. And the way I do that is basically look at every pair of matches where one player played two different guys. So let's say Schwartzman plays both Nadal and Federer and he breaks let's say let's say he breaks Nadal twice, he breaks Federer four times. So you would conclude then that Federer is a weaker server because the same guy broke him more times. So reverse that process, focus on on the quality of the returning rather than the quality of the serving. So basically just looking at how players are, are competing against an equal group of opponents. And the math, the algorithm gets pretty complicated there when you're running it for dozens of players. But the idea is, is just that in the tennis season, players are facing a really wide variety of opponents. It's not consistent at all from player to player, especially when you take surface into account. But when you do control for all that stuff, Schwartzman comes out way ahead. I mean, he's actually played tougher than average opponents for a top 50 guy, uh, especially going back to the, the first half of last season. I think he just keeps running into to Nadal on clay or Federer on hard. So... When you control for that, his return points, one percentage goes up, one or two percentage points. Nobody else's goes up as much when you take their their opponent into account. So when you do all that, you find that Schwartzman's the best returner on tour by something like two percentage points, which is huge. I mean, there, there's, we're not talking about a big range here. Most guys are between about 30 and 40 percent of return points won with maybe 41 or 42 at the absolute high end and somebody like Isner down around 27 or 28 and Schwartzman again I don't have the exact numbers handy but he was up at 43 percent or something so I mean just absolutely world-class returning and if he were a couple inches taller and returning served the same way we'd be looking at a top five player almost no question about that given that he's not that what do you think his peak ranking will be when, when we're in, I don't know, 10 years uh, reflecting on the career that was of Diego Schwartzman? Gosh, I, I really don't know. And, and like I said earlier, I didn't expect him to get this far. And the one example that comes to mind that gives me hope he could be a top 10 player is, is Pico Monaco. And 
Schwartzman is a more solid player than Monaco, I think, and Monaco also kind of lucked into a top 10 spot with a, he won his one uh, clay 500 against a really weak draw. So it, it's not the most intelligent comp to make, I don't think, but, but I, we've talked about this as well on the podcast before that there are a lot of guys who have, who've crept into the top 10 without really, I don't want to say deserving it because they deserve it, but without really being able to stay there for a long time, like maybe Jurgen Meltzer or Monaco is in this category. Uh, if they can do it, hey, I think if Diego keeps playing even on hard courts like he has so far without even improving, I think he will string together a season with maybe more than one clay court 500 win. I mean, there's no reason he can't win Hamburg this summer or something. So, so yeah, I'll, I'll say top 10. I have a hard time seeing him do much more than that. It's just being 5'7 is such a limitation. And I mean, just imagining him showing up as the alternate for the World Tour Finals in London, I mean, it just feels like he would be eaten alive. But on the other hand, he's he's beaten the guys who play there on hard courts. I mean, he, he beat Chilich at the U.S. Open last year, which I don't think was a particularly slow surface. So maybe I'm selling him short. I mean, what do you think, Carl? What's the career peak for Schwarzman? Well, I think with so much, it's hard to imagine what the competitive field looks like when all the guys who've been dominating tennis for the last decade or so clear out, if they do clear out anytime soon. But if they do, if you look at just sort of the contemporaries of Schwartzman, could I see him hanging with the likes of Goffin and Dimitrov or at least being in in the sort of tier right behind them? I, I definitely can. I mean, one thing that in addition to his, in, in my view, having had a few really close or hard luck or at least impressive losses last year on hard courts, he also did something that we've also talked about on the show before that actually runs counter to optimizing for ranking, where he would regularly get to the round of 16 or quarterfinals or semis without really breaking through at a lot of tournaments. Whereas if he had won a title or two and then had a lot more first-round losses, his one-loss record, his ELO rating, everything else that we might use to assess him would say he was just as good, but his ranking would actually be higher because you get that bonus for winning a title, for winning those those matches later in the tournament. So I think you just shuffle his results around a little bit and he'd already be not that far from top 10. Not to mention the gap right now between 10 and 20 in ranking points, I think between 8 and 20 in ranking points is not very big. There's just such a massive drop-off from Federer and Nadal really close together, 1-2, down to you know the next group right behind them and then another big drop off once you get to around number eight that it wouldn't take much actually in the next few months for Schwartzman to go into the top 10. Now of course you know we might be buying him high right after the biggest title of his career against a pretty good draw maybe he gets a bad draw in Indian Wells or Miami maybe he gets injured maybe this turns out to be the career peak but I certainly think pun intended that there's room to grow here. <laughs> Uh, well played, Carl. And that's a good point about just the next few months. Looking at his results, basically for the for the for the rest of 2017, or the comparable part of 2017 between now and the grass court season, he had several wins. Uh, made the the third round in Miami. He made the quarterfinal in Monte Carlo uh, and semifinal in Istanbul. Third round in Roland Garros. But really, that's it. So there's a lot of opportunity there. He lost in the first round in Indian Wells. He's going to have a big shot there. He's, he's actually playing Acapulco, which I want to come back to in a minute. So he won't be defending his quarterfinal points in Sao Paulo this week. But 
aside from which the is forty five points or something at the two fifty level, right? Yeah, it's it's not enough even to really talk about, and it, I I would have to look at his points breakdown, but it might be so low that it barely factors into his best eighteen. So mm-hmm. not even an issue. But aside from the quarterfinal at Monte Carlo, there's not a lot to really be concerned about here. I mean, th- this is a guy who you can see getting a decent draw and landing in the quarterfinals of Roland Garros, which would do huge benefits to his ranking. You can see him going back and winning Istanbul. You can see him landing in the... I can see him in the quarterfinal of any of the clay court masters. So that's one place where he could defend Monte Carlo points and then two more places in Madrid and Rome where he only won one match last year. So this really is his opportunity. I mean, to, to use my rather strained Juan Monaco comparison again... Monaco managed to have basically pack a, a lot of his career best results into one 12 month period. And I'm not saying that's what Schwartzman's going to do because I do think he can keep this up for five years, at least in the you know, 20 to 25 ranking level, if not higher. But this is a big opportunity. And we're, we're going to see him hopefully uh, improve in some of these places on what he did last year. And what I wanted to say about Acapulco is really what I was aiming for from the beginning of this episode, which is the choices players make between hard courts and clay courts, 500s and 250s, just all the factors that go into determining a, determining a tennis schedule. Uh, Schwartzman, as I mentioned, played Sao Paulo, which is a clay court 250 uh, this week last year. Uh, a lot of guys chose to play Acapulco. Uh, Dominic Team, I believe, chose to do that last year. Team and Schwartzman and Fernando Verdasco, the losing finalist in Rio today, um, all are going to Acapulco to play a 500 on hard courts instead of playing Sao Paulo, a 250 on clay. So, quick Carl, interjection yep. because you just mentioned them. You know who Verdasco is playing in the first round in Acapulco, right? I do. It's a, a rematch between Schwartzman and Verdasco, which I'm guessing it's happened more than we think. But it, it does really. But how often on a different surface days later? That's that's pretty. That's the cool element here. Yeah, that is that is pretty cool, and it, it's also nice for Schwartzman that he has a, a pretty easy hardcore draw to kick off his Acapulco campaign. Um, so so Carl, let's talk about this this series of choices players are making, and before before we dig into it too much, let's throw Dubai into the mix because we've got two hardcore 500s on almost different sides of the world, leading up to Indian Wells. So let's just focus on the clay versus hard first. Do you think it's a smart decision for guys like Team and Schwartzman who would be in the running for a Sao Paulo final to go play Acapulco, even if you know they might, let's say, crash out in the first couple of rounds? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I would not say Team and Schwartzman are guys like each other. I mean, as we've already talked about, even though conceptually we probably both thought of or still think of Schwartzman as more a clay court specialist, his results suggest otherwise, whereas team's results are pretty clear here that he is just so much better on clay. So I think it could be a different equation for the two of them where for team it would it, it would make a lot more sense to play Sao Paulo, whereas it could be that Schwartzman has just as many ranking points expectation from playing Acapulco because he's moving to a surface he should be about as comfortable on. Uh, tougher draw, but also twice as many points available. I, I think it's it's also a a question that's never been totally clear to me how to answer of to what extent players know what everybody else is doing. So they could have both looked at the draw in Acapulco last year, seen it was pretty strong, 
but thought, all right, there's still going to be a lot of guys who are in Dubai and also a lot of clay quarters who choose to stay on clay for another week. So maybe we can actually get, you know, a few wins in Acapulco without having too tough of a draw. If they maybe had known the full extent of how strong the draw was going to be with six of the top 11, uh, and in fact, I'm sorry, seven of the top 11, and only one other top 11 player active anywhere, so really seven of the top eight guys were playing this week all playing there, they might have made a different decision. Team, of course, is one of those guys, but still. Um, so I, I don't know to what extent they're able to sort of game the system that way or if they have to decide and if this is something of a coordination problem where players can't make an optimal decision because they don't know what everybody else is doing. But I think knowing the draw now, Schwartzman might feel, not, not necessarily knowing that he drew Verdasco, but knowing who else was in the field, he might still feel comfortable with the choice. Whereas I think team would, would probably regret not getting one more weekend on clay. The, the other factor we have to think about that I really don't know how to quantify is how important is it to get on hard a week early for the upcoming double of Indian Wells and Miami? Does it, does it actually help results to get an extra t- hardcore tournament in, even if you, you might lose in the first round and not actually get that much match play? And does it matter at all also that Acapulco is in the same time zone as Indian Wells? Those are both reasonable theories, but I have no evidence that either one of those things actually helps. Yeah, that might be something that's testable. If we if, if we were able to find enough examples of weeks like this where there's hard and clay tournaments both being played and then players from those two tournaments go to a major or a, a master's like Indian Wells this week, I just don't think there's that many instances on the schedule where it happens. But in those cases, we could look and see whether players outperform or underperform if they're if they're switching surfaces. I'm a little skeptical about how big an effect it would have in a situation like Indian Wells because the, the anyone who's going to be seated at Indian Wells, which is virtually everyone we're talking about since there are 32 seeds, all those guys skipped to the second round. And I don't think the men's second round starts until Friday or Saturday. So your average player is going to lose in the round of 16 or the quarterfinals wherever they play this week. So they're going to fly to Indian Wells one week before their first match. So that's that's a lot of practice time, a lot of practice matches on Indian Wells hard courts that I don't know if playing a couple of just the only difference being competitive matches in Acapulco would make much of a difference. But like I say, that that's something that's testable. And Schwartzman is, is going right into the fire here because if he does get past Verdasco, it's a, a fascinating section of the draw. Um, he could face John Isner in the second round, and we saw those two play a really tight match in Paris last fall. And then the winner of that match, hopefully Schwartzman, uh, could face Alexander Zverev in the in Jeff, the you're not rooting for the American? I am not rooting for the American, strangely enough. That's a, a theme going through my sports fandom, I'm afraid. <laughs> would you would you root for Isner over Schwartzman? Uh, sorry, John, but I'm I just want to see Schwartzman keep keep rising. I, I do love the photos of the two of those guys before matches. And I think they're they're buddies. They seem to really enjoy each other's company and uh Schwartzman maybe hit the shot of the year last year against Isner in that Paris match we mentioned. So I'll hope for a lot of highlights from both guys, but then for Schwartzman to get through. Yeah, and I'd, you know, I'd have to look and see whether Schwartzman and Zverev have even faced each other. I can't remember any examples, but 
that could be a very interesting match as well. I've I've watched a few of Zverev's matches already from this season, and he seems to be going into overdrive with uh, temper and frustration, um, especially in the Seppi match he lost in Rotterdam a couple weeks ago. The rackets were broken. Yell, there was there was yelling. All all the sorts of immature Zverev highlights, and someone like Schwartzman could absolutely drive him nuts. Where the strategy is to get him into a third set and have him you know just implode in that third set but in any case it'd be really interesting to see here's the head-to-head jeff they've played once in kitzbühel which i'm sure i'm saying wrong on clay in 2014 when zverev was 17 years old maybe do you want to guess the score i i have no idea i'm guessing oh i vaguely remember that but no i'm not even gonna guess i don't know schwartzman won six one six love Wow. Okay. Maybe which, which, maybe a preview of this Friday. Yeah, I'm sure very predictive of Acapulco 2018. Yep. So we've talked a little bit about Acapulco versus Sao Paulo. Then uh, it, it it could be that, like you say, players are a little surprised about how strong the Acapulco draw is. Maybe someone, some of these guys, maybe even more someone like Verdasco or David Ferrer is playing Acapulco as well. Guys like that would be in a position to take more advantage of Sao Paulo uh, because I think team won this tournament two years ago. As we've talked about, Schwartzman has has a good chance on hard as well. So what about Acapulco versus Dubai? You, as you mentioned, virtually all the top players are going to Acapulco. Federer was flirting with Dubai a little bit. Uh, he played last year. He's in Dubai a lot. So it would have made sense for him, but he chose to take the week off instead. So it's it's a pretty weak draw. Uh, do you think players are so overwhelmingly choosing Acapulco just because of the time zone? I mean, is, is Dubai kind of on the way down just because it's in this awkward spot on the calendar? Yeah, I mean, it, it was able to kind of command this market when Acapulco was played on clay. And I think it was a really smart move by Acapulco because now they get a lot of the guys who had been playing on clay in South America but are ready to make the move ahead of Indian Wells onto hard courts. And they get a lot of the guys from Europe who say, all right, I'll just go to the Americas a week early and have a a really easy flight from there to Indian Wells. I, I think that, again, like if they could now look at the draws and reconsider that some of them would rather be playing Dubai this week for sure. I mean, one thing that's really striking in addition to just how much easier the Dubai draw looks where the top seed is Dimitrov. It's, it's a legitimate top seed. He's number four in the world, but then, you know, you've, you've got Luca Pui and Batista Agut and, and uh, Zumer as the next three seeds. And that's, you know, there's, there's just three other guys in the top 30, whereas Acapulco has seven of the top 11. So it, it's really imbalanced. So I'm sure some guys would love the opportunity, even if it means a slightly longer trip, actually, a much longer trip to Indian Wells, but plenty of recovery time, as you pointed out. And there's a lot of money in Dubai. I mean, Acapulco has a total financial commitment of more than three times Sao Paulo's, but Dubai has something like another 60 to 70% more money in the pot than Acapulco does. So there's actually like a lot of money at stake. I mean, it's not the level of a master's, but it's it's not far off uh, from some of the the lower revenue masters. So it's certainly 
there's a lot of temptations I think in Dubai between ranking points and money and it should be a pretty good prep for Indian Wells as long as you can recover from that long flight. Yeah, Carl, I'm glad you brought up the money. I didn't realize there was that big of a gap between Dubai and Acapulco, but it doesn't surprise me at all. And one thing I noticed, I, I think it was in Doha this year, that that draw was a bit weaker than it has been in the past, you know, partly because the Doha match I remember from the last couple of years is a Murray-Djokovic final. So you know, if those two guys aren't playing that week, then that's going to be a pretty big hit for Doha right there. But I think we've all heard the stories about the, the tournaments in the Middle East just absolutely throwing money at top players. Uh, they have the money, uh, they're, and they're willing to spend it, but I wonder if they're only willing to spend it for the biggest possible names. And obviously they're going to woo Federer every year, and they'll woo Nadal, but maybe Nadal, Nadal has played Acapulco more, he's more comfortable with, um, with Latin America. So maybe that decision was made regardless of what kind of bonus package was available. And after, after Dimitrov, I'm not sure who would be viewed as a worthy player to bring in for a half million or one million dollar appearance fee. And at that point, then maybe it is just it, it, there, there's very little to attract people to Dubai if they are, if they are prioritizing Acapulco for any reason, the time zone or uh, the travel time or whatever. So I, I think that's a factor as well, and and you wonder what might happen with these tournaments in the Middle East when the big four is out of the picture, and maybe there isn't the same sort of celebrity presence at the top of the game, if we will see some just consistently weaker draws in Doha and Dubai and the like. Yeah, I think that Doha used to get, you mentioned in Mari, Djokovic final, which was last year, but I think they used to also get Nadal and Federer pretty regularly, and that in fact, you could count on the big four playing all, all three or two of the three of the Abu Dhabi exhibition before the start of the year, and then Doha, and then Dubai. And combination of those players not playing as much or being injured or choosing other priorities has really shifted things. I think the Dubai tournament this year wanted Murray Djokovic and Vavrinka and Murray and Djokovic are idle now. Vavrinka has returned but hasn't really had a strong tournament yet since his return and and I think is idle this week. Anyway, uh, so they really need to either decide they are going to start focusing on some of the names that maybe are less familiar to the fans there or yeah, they'll get draws like they have this week, which I think is going to is going to really hurt interest in the tournament. Okay, so here's the, the big question in a week like this. We've got a, a 500-level tournament with a, with a really big purse in the Middle East. We have a 500-level tournament with a decent-sized purse not far from Indian Wells. And we've got a clay court tournament with less points, a lot less money in South America for players who are hanging around there. This is all happening one week before Indian Wells, which is one of the biggest tennis events of the year. This is all happening to cul as the culmination of a month of just nutty tennis scheduling where there's three tournaments every week on the men's side. So after the Australian Open, I, I saw one of the official Twitter accounts referred to this month as frantic February because there's so much tennis going on. Um, do you think all of this is good for tennis? The Australian Open seems to be a, a huge event, massively popular. Indian Wells is really solid as the fifth slam. And we have all of this chaos and players playing in different places for a month in between that 
I think, like, an, maybe an order of magnitude fewer fans are actually paying any attention to. So, so in your self-appointed role as commissioner of tennis, <laughs> Carl, um, is this something you keep? Is this good for the game to have, have three tournaments spread around the world like this? Well, as self-appointed commissioner of tennis, I wrote for a little website called TennisAbstract.com around this time last year about this exact issue. And no, I don't think this is good for tennis. I mean, I think it's it's good for the hardcore fans. It's probably good for some players to have this kind of choice. But the game is always at its best when the best players are together and have the potential to play against each other and are doing it on big stages where the world can watch. And it also just lends coherence. It lends narrative to have tournaments build up to other tournaments and to have a giant opening to the season with the Australian Open and all sorts of excitement and attention and then basically squander that to a month of scattering the players around the globe and around different surfaces. I mean, we mentioned clay and outdoor hard, but there's a lot of indoor hard in February too. It's just a mess. I mean, there, there are enough tennis locations around the world that you can have warm weather tournaments in February and you could have probably a really solid indoor hard season later in the year where it has more narrative coherence tying into events like the indoor masters in Paris and like the tour finals for the WTA and ATP. So no, not, not a fan. How about you? Well, I think, I think this is a, a mistake. Uh, I, I think that there's, that there's a lot of weeks where there are tournaments that we could get rid of if, if there was a all powerful commissioner. Um, I think there's some benefit in having the tour fragmented a little bit, especially with, with different surfaces like I I would have no problem with having concurrent hardcourt and clay court 500s I think that would be really interesting partly for the the issues we've been talking about like that if it's a, the week before Indian Wells does Dominic team stay and play on clay or does he go seek out the, the opportunity to warm up on on hard uh, but yeah the fact that we have two competing 500s uh, not a lot of weeks like that and there's something else to complicate it even further. I mean, I don't remember whether there's still two 500s the same week in the fall. I'm thinking no, but there was the years where I think Vienna and Valencia were both 500s, something like that. I feel like I'm getting it wrong, but... Um, no, that sounds right. Maybe maybe it was Basel and Vienna. Or Valencia and Basel, yeah. Something like that. There were, there were two 500s the same week. And in the structure of the end of the season with players looking to build points for the World Tour Finals, I think it was the week before Paris, which is geographically similar and the surface is the same, then that made sense to me for some reason. Uh, and by could, the way, still true. Vienna, Basel, 500, same week, week before Paris this year. Okay. I think, I think maybe that's what's changed in the last couple of weeks that they've moved into the same week. One of them used to share a week with, with Valencia or something. But all of this is, is beside the point. The point being that at that point... I don't remember whether this is something you approved of in your in your fixing tennis post, but uh, there was this lead up towards the World Tour Finals. It, it makes it makes sense to have a Masters be the final event. It might be better if there's a Slam before it, but Masters is pretty good. And having the dual right surface uh, 500s makes sense since they're in the same place. But imagine how Halle and Holly and Queens works that way. It makes sense to me. Beijing and Tokyo work that way. It makes sense to me. Yeah, exactly. Uh, imagine, imagine if you had a, a clay 250 in, I don't know, Bogota, 
the week of Basel in Vienna, <laughs> or I don't know if you, if you put a tournament in Hong Kong, the week of of Halle and Queens. I mean, it, it's just it's just bizarre. And even if Sao Paulo kind of fits with the what's left of the Golden Swing, it doesn't make a lot of sense now. And I think it, it leaves us with sort of orphaned tournaments. And one thing that ATP has been decent at, I think, is avoiding weeks where there is a tournament that is just kind of forgotten. And I'm thinking of that because the the page I have open on my browser right now is the draw for the Budapest event on the women's tour this past week, which you would be forgiven if you didn't even know happened because it's an international. It was competing against Dubai, which is it was a really solid draw uh, on the women's side. Tons of stars there. Really only one name player in Budapest. And the WTA, unfortunately, has a few weeks like this where there's just sort of an orphaned international event and the ATP has managed to avoid that but Sao Paulo is about as orphaned as you can possibly be and it maybe it doesn't it's not that bad for the game because most people just ignore it I mean I think the majority of tennis fans who are going to turn on a TV this week are going to see something from Acapulco or Dubai and won't even know Sao Paulo is going on but maybe Acapulco and, and Dubai would have been better if there wasn't a tournament in South America bleeding some decent players from it. And that that's ultimately the, the question. As you say, tennis is best when you have the best players playing against each other. And we lose a little bit of that every time you have a second or third tournament that doesn't really need to be there and ends up being that much weaker because of it. Yeah, I'd love to see Monfils on hard this week. I'd love to see Fabio Fanini on hard this week. And they're, they're playing Sao Paulo. Yeah, it's it's strange. So so thanks to my somewhat awkward segue, let's talk a little bit, bit about the ladies this past week. Uh, I, I don't really need to go into a lot of depth with Budapest. Um, Dominika Sibokova was the top seed there. She made it to the final, but she lost to Alice and Van Oitvank. Uh, that's a nice continuing comeback from Van Oitvank, who missed, I think, almost a year after a nice French Open run. And she's come back and... Uh, had a couple of smaller titles to her name. So hopefully we'll see her factor more into bigger events. But the big story this past week on the women's side is is Dubai. Alina Svitolina won that title with what turned out to be a pretty easy final against Daria Kazakina. But there were some really solid quarterfinal and semifinal matches with Muguruza and Kerber in the mix. And it was a bit of a coming out party for Daria Kazakina. Uh, Carl, one thing I... I keep remembering it from our very first podcast episode, which was about 10 months ago so or so now. We talked almost entirely about the men, as we are seeming to do this week as well. But we did touch on the results from Charleston last year, which was a final between Yelena Ostapenko and Daria Kazakina. They're a month apart in age. At that point, they were pretty similar in rankings. They've both been viewed as big prospects for a long time. They both have Russian-sounding names, so they, they end up being grouped together a lot, and even more so then than now. And back then, I asked you who you thought the, the, the more promising player out of the two was, and you went with Ostapenko, I went with Kazakina, and so far, your pick is looking <laughs> a, lo- a lot better than mine. But mine is, is making a little bit of a, a comeback, and they're both super young, like 20 or something, so uh, they, there's a long time to run on those predictions. And this is, this is like I say, a bit of Kazakina's coming out party and breaks her into the top 20 for the first time. Uh, 
similar question to how we started with Schwartzman. What do you think about Kazakina? Do you think she will eventually overtake Ostapenko? Do you think she's a potential top five player? Where do you see her ending up in the long term? Yeah, so she's the highest... They're the only player younger than her who's ranked higher is Ostapenko, and they're just a month apart. And I think sometimes players peak early, sometimes their injuries and so on, but it's still pretty useful generally to look at where players rank with their cohorts and that's a pretty positive sign for me that she that there aren't she she's farther further ahead than anyone younger than her other than Ostapenko and that suggests that when she peaks she could be one of the best players of her of her era basically if we slice eras up small enough for that to be meaningful and then in terms of Ostapenko being the better pick a year ago, well, sure, of course I made the better pick. But but if you look at the actual gap between them, it's almost entirely the French Open that Ostapenko won kind of out of nowhere. And you could probably even make the case it's entirely the French Open. She has a 2,700-point ranking lead, 2,000 of that is the French Open. Could another 700 of that be points she got because she had a better ranking after the French Open and had easier draws from that point? I think that's possible. So it could be that you take out that one tournament and they've basically had the same year. Maybe I'm, I'm stretching a little bit, but I, I don't see any reason why it, we couldn't see the rankings reversed a year from now. Yeah, not only that, the not only the French Open points, as you point out, but also the the fact that that got her into the tour finals in Singapore. Uh, she won a match there, and there's a pretty hefty point bonus just from from winning a match in Singapore, regardless of whether you land in the semifinals or the finals. And also, it's interesting to note that on the WTA ELO rating right now, not yet updated for Dubai, but through the week before, Kazakina is actually six points ahead of Ostapenko. Um, it, I was surprised to see both of them so low. They're 24th and 25th of the ELO rating. We can probably nudge that up to about 20th when you take out all the players who are kind of non-factors right now, like Serena and there's a couple other players like that uh, ahead of them. But Kazakina's got the edge in ELO. She's going to be higher after this week after her wins in Dubai. So by that measure, yeah, it really is just that one tournament. Like as As you like to point out, Carl, uh, you gain a lot more from clustering your wins, and Ostapenko clustered them like they've never been clustered before <laughs> with a with a surprise slam like that. And it, it is an interesting contrast that I think will be fascinating for years to come between the counterpunchers and the a- aggressive players, because Ostapenko is as aggressive as they come. You know, When I ran the aggression score stat, Ostapenko comes out as the most aggressive player on the WTA, uh, even more than Petra Kvitova, who before that was outrageously higher than anyone else on tour. And Kazakina is almost as passive as someone like Wozniacki. So two real extremes of the sport, as we've discussed in, in previous episodes and probably don't need to go too much into depth on today, the the aggressive version seems to be more successful in slams. So maybe that's something we'll continue to see from Ostapenko, but the the passive players seem to be the ones who get their rankings really high even without the slams like Halep and, and Wozniacki. So maybe that's the mold for Kazakina. We'll just have to see whether she can turn that into into a slam final or a slam victory or two. Maybe in five years when, when she's closer to 
what might be her career peak and some of these other players are, are increasingly out of the picture. By the way, speaking of what's more effective at slams, the only time the two of them met at a slam was at the U.S. Open last year. Kasatkina won 6-3, 6-2. Okay. Yeah, well, as, as we have seen in the Australian Open, especially this year, this aggression wins at slams is... It's not 100%. Definitely not. Uh, we had a lot of, of late-round wins of, of our passive favorites over uh, some, some more aggressive favorites. So... Let's talk as well about Svitolina. Um, she's been a little bit of the forgotten woman on the WTA so far this year because she wasn't in the mix for the Australian Open title, but you got to figure she's she's going to be around in almost every weekend at these big events as she was in Dubai, head-to-head um, -head against a Halep or a Wozniacki or really any of the other top players. She's, she's someone with a good chance to win every match. I mean, last year, again, this was one of our, our first conversations, Carl, er, early in the life of the podcast, you were very bullish on Spitalina, even maybe when she was out of the top 10 uh, at this point last year, and you pegged her as landing in Singapore, which, of course, she did quite comfortably. Now she's is sitting behind Wozniacki and Halep in the rankings. Uh, do you think that she could she could get to number one? Do you think she could maybe even win a slam this year? I think she's got to win the slam to get to number one. I mean, she's her results have been so strong, except at slams, and that's where the points are. And I, I think she still hasn't reached her first slam semi. Uh, it's remarkable that she's as close to number one as she is without winning a slam, but she's still about 2,500 points out. And I just think it's going to be too hard for her to pass three other women, two of them 2,000 points or more ahead of her if she can't win a slam title or at least make a final. But yeah, I think she probably has to win one. I think she certainly can win one. I, you know, I, I find it generally somewhat baffling when we talk about players who can't get it done at majors where they can elsewhere. Alex, Alexander Zverev being a classic example on the men's side where he's had incredible results in, in non-major events, tour events, and then been a big disappointment at majors. On the women's side, it, to me, it's even more baffling because they're playing the same format, best of three at the slams. And there are differences, especially that there's a day off in between. But why Svitolina in a round of 16 against Ostapenko at Wimbledon or in you know a quarterfinal at the Australian Open against Mertens, why she can't win those matches when she's regularly beating better players by lopsided scores at tour events like Dubai, it's 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 just hard to understand, which makes me think it's going to end eventually. She's 23 years old. She's got to be ready to, if there were mental issues holding her back, I just find it hard to believe they'll continue. And I, I, I think we will see a breakthrough soon. I don't know if that means a slam title as opposed to a slam final or a slam semi. And I think she probably does need a slam title to get to number one. You're probably right. Uh, I do have to say, as a, as a side note, Carl, I'm a bit disappointed in you because Spinalina is basically 23 and a half right now. <laughs> I didn't give the decimal. You're right. I'm yeah, sorry. you have a you have a very high standard to uphold there. Um, it is interesting that you point out where the points are going to need to come from, and normally that is the case. It is it is an interesting time to say that though because we have Hallett back at number one today without. Um, with, without a slam herself and of course true, although two finals in her point total two finals that's true 
And Svitolina does have a big opportunity to boost her point total just in Indian Wells and Miami. Not enough to make up the difference that you point out, unless Wozniacki and Halep absolutely uh, just get get knocked out in their first matches. But in Indian Wells and Miami last year, Svitolina lost in the fourth round in Indian Wells. That was to Muguruza, so that's a, a, a fair loss, but you'd expect better from her at the event. And Miami, she lost in, the, in her first match to Bethany Maddox-Sands. So the good news for Spitalina is she definitely won't draw Bethany Maddox-Sands this year. Uh, and <laughs> hopefully she will go a lot deeper in Miami. So there's a lot of points on the table then. But, like you say, the fact her ranking is so high without the slam results means she's been very good away from that. And she does have a lot of points to defend after, uh, after Indian Wells in Miami. Istanbul title in April, uh, Rome title in May, and she did get to the quarterfinals of Roland Garros, so lots of points on the table there at Roland Garros, but she'll have to play well just to defend the points. So it, it will be tough, you're right, and and I think maybe for Spitalina, the, the number one in her future is more than one year away. I do think that she is a number one at some point in her career, and Honestly, I hope so, because she has so much talent. I think this year she's starting to play a little bit more aggressively, which is promising. We've talked before about how uh, being associated with Justine Henna um, would hopefully allow her to become a little more aggressive and play more like Justine did, because really everyone should play more like Justine did, uh, Alina Spitalina in particular. So the potential is there, absolutely. We've seen so much of it, and she might in, in a lot of ways be a more compelling number one than Wozniacki or, dare I say it, Simona Halep. Uh, I think Spitalina is a really, a really engaging player and engaging on and off the court. So she'd be good for the sport. But I, I think it's going to happen, but maybe not this year. Just speaking of that, that French Open quarterfinal, I mean, that was, if you want to point to she is just a weak player mentally at slam, she was up a set and 5-1 on Halep in that match. And then she had a match point in the second set tiebreak, which Halep saved with a backhand down the line winner. And then this is thanks to Jeff charting the match that I, I can recall this with this level of detail. And then I do remember this from watching the match that Halep actually ended up winning that tiebreaker with the net cord winner, which is just brutal. Uh, and then Svitolina barely won a point in the third set and lost in a bagel. So... That's, you know, she was still in that match. It was an even match. She had outplayed Halep in the first two sets, and she basically disappeared in the third set after squandering that 5-1 lead in the second. So that she, she needs to be able to overcome those sort of mid-match setbacks better on the, those big stages because she can't just expect to, to romp all the way to a major title. And that's a, a really useful example you bring up because Simona Halep is not known as mentally the strongest player on tour. I mean, last year, I, I forget the exact number, but she had something like six opportunities to win a match and take over the number one ranking, and she lost the first five. Uh, she, this is a, a lot of, of confirmation bias, I think, but it's easy to remember a lot of times where she, she had matches on her racket and couldn't serve them out. Just at the Australian Open, I have these matches fresh in my memory since I've just, I've just watched and charted them, but... In the third rounder against Lauren Davis that went 15-13 in the third set, I think Simona served for the match three times before she finally won it. Against Kerber, she served for the match a time or two. Uh, there's a, a lot of times that that happens to Simona Halep, and she she usually ends up winning the match. I mean, it, it's one thing that helps from being better than most of her opponents, but 
she she really has to work for it because she doesn't win that many of at least what seems like that many of, of the clutch points and the reason I'm going into detail for this rather belabored segue is because it's it's one of the studies that I'm absolutely dying to do. I just need to set aside the time to uh, to work it out, which is delving into how successful players are when they're serving for the set. And I, I ran the numbers for the men a couple years ago and, and didn't turn into something I could really publish. And the findings there were that it wasn't much of a difference. Players were maybe 1% or 2% worse at converting service games when they were serving for the match, which it's something there. I, I don't remember whether I could establish whether it was statistically significant, but it, was, it wasn't something you could see with the naked eye. It, it was that small. But on the women's side, maybe it's just, uh, it's just prime examples like Simona Halep in these big matches, but it seems like there's a bigger difference. Uh, do you think that's that's possible, Carl? That we could see players uh, either because the servers are stronger or are weaker, or because the returners are stronger, that final service game being that difficult to convert. I think it's plausible. I mean, I, I wonder how much of that would just come about mathematically from you're already starting from a lower percentage chance of winning a service point, so your your hold chances are more like holding at 30 or after getting to do so a, a smaller swing in or the same swing in point win probability could have a bigger effect on game win probability i don't know i don't know if you're sort of in a zone where you can see a bigger effect from from the same actual change on a point by point basis but yeah i mean it certainly seems from the naked eye like this this does happen a lot to top women and you know, even even if we do find it, there's always the question of well, maybe it's just the returner is stepping up their game more than the server is faltering. And I guess other than double faults and maybe a couple of other indica indicators, it can be hard to separate those two possible explanations. Yeah, and and another factor is you know the metaphor that commentators always use, or and players, coaches as well, is that when when a match gets close, that a player will get tight, and that's why they why they choke. And that's not just a metaphor because literally your muscles do get tight and you'll, you'll, miss, you'll miss shots because you, you don't execute the shots perfectly. And that's another difference between the men and the women's game that could explain this difference, if it's real. Again, I haven't tested it. This is just speculation based on some prominent matches that stick out in memory. But keeping in mind that women's points are more likely to go to a second, third, fourth shot than, than ATP points are. So... In that case, there's more opportunities for the player who is who is trying to serve it out to get tight and lose the point because of that, or the player who is returning to stay in the match and is, again, sort of a metaphor, but sort of not a metaphor, swinging freely and maybe playing a little better, that's more likely to have an effect. And that could be what we're seeing as well. That's another thing I'm really interested in looking into with match charting data is in those key points, how, how are the outcomes of those points changing in the sense of, are we seeing more service winners? Are we seeing more unforced errors? Are we seeing more winners during the points? And I, I suspect there's something there. I mean, it's it's a pretty in-depth project kit to get into, but I think no, those are some some big questions that would be really useful to answer. Just to even just to be better watchers of tennis to know what to look for when matches are getting close to the end, because that's it's so much of what we end up talking about after the match. Yeah, and those are the points that have the highest leverage and, and the most important. So it's it's not just for narrative that we're talking about them. And, and that's a fascinating theory that if 
players are men and women are equally likely to feel pressure on any given shot, but because there are more shots in the average women's rally that that would come into play more often just from there being more opportunity. That that seems plausible. Yeah. Maybe talking about this and, and getting your plausibility seal of approval will be the nudge it takes for me to actually run this study. Um, we don't have if a... that's all I have to do, I'll tell you all your theories are plausible because <laughs> I want to see them all tested. Yeah, you, you are a good source of research ideas, that is for sure, both with both from, um, from your own source and from just from uh, approving of mine. So one last thing I want to touch on this week. We only have a, a few minutes left before we need to wrap this one up. But we talked about Kazakina and her breakthrough. Uh, getting back on the men's side to Delray Beach, we had a big breakthrough from the American Francis Tiafo. Uh, that's an American I root for, Carl. Um, really like Tiafo. I don't know of anybody who doesn't like Tiafo, actually. Um, he is also quite young, also one of the highest-ranked players in his age bracket, and one who I think a lot of people are very bullish on. I saw him play one of his first ATP matches in Washington, D.C. a few years ago, and I didn't really see a lot to, to be excited about in his game then, but clearly he's developed some since then, and it's also possible I was wrong then. So... What do you think, Carl? This is a really, really big accomplishment from him, not just the just the nature of, of getting the trophy, but also the fact that he beat uh, Juan Martin Del Potro to get there, he beat Hyun Chung to get there, and then um, Peter Goyachik in the final. So, really nice tournament from him. It's just a 250. We don't want to read too much into it, but let's add, let's talk about the same question we talked about with Kazakina. What do you think the future holds? What do you think the peak ranking is for Francis Tiafo? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, I, I remember a lot of people talking about him and his potential when he took Federer to five sets at the U.S. Open. And one of the things brought up was maybe raising some of the similar, some of the reasons that you weren't sure about his potential in D.C., which is he does have an unconventional looking game. The strokes don't look like textbook strokes. And yet, you know, he took two sets off Federer in the U.S. Open. Federer was not playing his best, but, you know, to win a fourth set 6-1 against Federer in New York at night, pretty, pretty exciting stuff. Um, I don't know how much to make of this run. You know, he came into Delray Beach with four career top 50 wins, and he got three in one week, actually in consecutive matches. And not only were they top 50 wins, but you know, Del Potro is a top 10 win and a, and, a, and a real, like a legitimate top 10 win, a guy who's been in the top 10 for a lot of weeks in his career. And then the other two wins were against guys who I think most people expect to spend many weeks of their careers in the top 10 in the future, Chung and Shapovalov, who it, at the last two majors each had deep runs at, at one of them. So really impressive results. I also was at the match the week before in at the New York Open at the Nassau Coliseum where Tiafo, after reaching the quarterfinals against lower-ranked opponents, actually took Kevin Anderson to 6-4 in the third, and that's, you know, a number 11 player in the world. So is this a big breakthrough? Is this, okay, now he can actually regularly hang with and beat top 50 talent and will himself soon be in the top 50 and higher? It's possible. I also think about another promising young American who around this time two years ago had two really good tournaments. Taylor Fritz made it to the final in Memphis and lost 4-4 four and four to Nishikori in the final. No shame in that. He beat Steve Johnson along the way. 
And then he went to Acapulco, and he didn't beat any really big names. We did beat number 30, Jeremy Shardy, and made the quarterfinals in Acapulco after qualifying uh, and lost a three-setter to Sam Querrey. Again, no shame in that. So I think people had a lot of excitement for Fritz at the time. He entered the top 80. And as it turned out, you know, he hasn't accomplished that much since then on tour. Like, he, he sort of um, plateaued in his ranking and in his results since then. I hope that won't be the case with Tiafo. I think it's clear that he's a really good match player, that he he likes big, exciting matches with, with an excited crowd. I think, you know, the, the Federer match shows it. I think, you know, playing um, the sort of featured matches at Delray Beach over and over... Uh, I think it's impressive that he finished off the Chung match the same day he played Shapovalov. I mean, there wasn't much left to play in the Chung match, but that's partly because he finished it convincingly and he still had to come back on court a few hours later. So I think there are a lot of positive signs here, but I'm not ready to say he's going to reach the top 10 yet just because of how infrequent big wins were in his career until this week. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. The, the top 10 potential is definitely there, in, it, but it's still potential. I think... A lot of times players make the a first prominent step like this. I, I always make the same projection for them, which is, yeah, I, I, I think they'll land in the top 20, but I don't want to say top 10. Maybe that's just a cop-out for me since I'll so rarely be more optimistic than that. But it's interesting you mention Taylor Fritz there. I think that's a, a really useful comparison because we were talking about him the same way, like you say, a couple of years ago. It's also um, a coincidence because I'm, I'm looking now at the top-ranked players under the age of 21, and before Delray, Tiafo was sixth on that list, uh, right behind Fritz, also closely behind Tsitsipas. So with the Delray title, it looks like he moves up to 61 in the world, which means he's the fourth-highest-rated player uh, uh, under 21. The three ranked above him are Alexander Zverev, it's pretty good company, Andre Rublev, also pretty solid company, and Denis Shapovalov, the guy he just beat in the semifinals. Uh, and sh- there's a pretty wide range in age there. Zverev's almost a year older than Tiafo. Shapovalov's almost a year younger, which really speaks to how amazing Shapovalov has been so far at such a young age. But sticking with, with Tiafo and Fritz, uh, there is a big difference in their games. And Fritz is, is a pretty serve-centered guy, and this is, again, something that needs to be tested. It's a rule of thumb I use that might be partially or entirely wrong, but I get the sense that one-dimensional serve guys tend to reach their peaks a lot faster. Um, maybe not like an absolute career best ranking peak, but like Isner, for instance, was as soon as he went pro, he won tons of futures and challenger matches almost immediately. It seemed like he was in the top 30 really fast compared to how long he'd been playing on tour. And he has built on that somewhat. He cracked the top 10 for a while, but he's, he's hovered in that same range for a lot of his career, even as he, we've seen him improve certain parts of his game. It just hasn't really shown up that much in the rankings. Um, I think Fritz might be a similar case, though not as good. We saw him break into the top 100 then, and he hasn't done a lot since then. Tiafo is very different style of player, um, even apart from the actual results that you point out, that he can compete with Federer's and Del Potro's. Um, that sort of game, I think, is more prone to develop, and that development will show up in the rankings as a player matures and, and gains skill. So if we were to just look at Tiafo and Fritz with the same ranking at the same age, not at 
precisely true, but let's pretend that's the case. I would put my money on Tiafo over Fritz just because of the playing styles. And now that we've seen Tiafo climb higher than Fritz did, I believe, uh, then the potential is even greater. So, yeah, lot, lots of reasons to be excited, but still is just a 250 and not a lot of other results to go off of. So have to keep things under control to some extent. Yeah, in their, that same age group in the Young American ranks is Riley Opelka, and he's another guy who made it almost to the top 100 and has kind of regressed, and he is a, probably even more of a serve-dominant game than Fritz, a, very, a game very similar to Isner's. Do you think it's because tactics are more important the less potent your serve is and that takes more time to develop, the the decision-making and the, the overall tactics and strategy of, of a match? Yeah, I I think that's part of it, um, and and part of it is also just that you will win some lucky matches if you're a huge server. When Fritz was on his run, there were a ton of tie breaks. Uh, another sort of half baked theory that I've seen from other people, not just me, is that young players have an edge in in clutch points just because they don't know any better. They don't they don't know to get nervous. So if if you're playing a lot of tie breaks, maybe. Either you just you just win half of them because that's how tie breaks usually go, or you win more than half because you're young and immature and don't know any better. And just just the luck of all those tie breaks is going to launch you to a certain point in the rankings. I mean, look at guys who are, I don't know, number 30 to number 40 in the rankings. A lot of them have yearly one-loss records about 50%. So if you can, if all you could do as a tennis player was win every service game, lose every return game, and every tiebreak was a coin flip, then I think you could be number 35 in the world. So if, obviously that's that's not realistic, Opelka can't do that, even Isner can't do that, but the point being that be, having a big serve, if it is developed at that early of an age, then you're going to get higher in the rankings than any other part of your game really deserves. And there's not that much you can do to improve on that. I mean, that's another area where I've done some research, but maybe not enough, is that players don't improve their return games that much. So if you break onto tour with a, a winning 28% of return points, you're pretty much destined to be John Isner at the absolute best, or Ivo Karlovich at the absolute best. You're not, you're not going to turn into someone who's suddenly winning 35% of your return points and in the mix for the top 10. It's just... History says it doesn't happen, so that's a big factor as well. And I think that's it's, that's why we haven't seen much more from Fritz, but doesn't apply to Tiafo at all. Well, this brings us a little full circle because we started by talking about Schwartzman and just how fantastically gifted he is as a returner. And he's twenty five, so he's not in the same age cohort, but he's younger than a lot of the top players. And we have seen that he's able to improve his serve. So maybe he's an example of someone who. Um, who already started from being a great returner and is now able to rise in the rankings because he has that in the bank, whereas a lot of the top young talent is is weak on the return side. Uh, so I'm just looking now at Tennis Abstract's leaderboard for a turn point winning percentage, and one na- one of the first names among the really young players is Andre Rublev at 39%. So maybe he has some of the best potential of these younger guys going off of that because he certainly has the potential to have a big and excellent serve and already has a very strong return game. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, yeah, and it, it certainly seems that way thinking about the players who have ex, who have 
peaked late or con continued to develop late in their careers and, and some of the ones who were able to stick around outside of the very best. I mean, someone like David Ferrer is still kicking around. You see um, some of the guys who are surprisingly peaking in their 30s now uh, are, are a lot of the, the more clay court guys. I mean, Pablo Carreño Busta is still climbing in the rankings and he's almost 27. So, I mean, it, I don't know. It, 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 this is a tough thing to to establish anecdotally. It's one of those, another one of those things that we we need some studies on to to tease out what what the real effects are of being a return first player or a serve first player or being well balanced. And like like I said, I, I've done some studies in the past showing how players don't improve. But then again, it it, it seems like they must, right? That if if we say someone can never improve on say a 30% return point one percentage that might be be true at a basic level but I've never run that with with return point one percentage adjusted for for quality of competition so if someone like Nick Kyrgios is posting the same numbers as a as a returner that he did three years ago then that actually does mean he has improved a little and he's just playing better players now so we need some more um some more granularity I think in in this kind of analysis so we're we're talking more from facts and less from just the the sort of more research guesswork. for Jeff more the research two of the bottom yeah. two of the bottom five in this category uh not unadjusted Kyrgios and Shapovalov so certainly hope for their sake that your more granular finely tuned research finds that there's room for improvement and Shapovalov is significantly younger so it would seem more likely that he could re improve than Kyrgios yeah, you you would hope so. I'm I'm willing to to miss out on Kyrgios in the top five. My life does not need that, but I I do think Shapovalov is a really exciting player to watch. He'd be great for the game if he was someone who launched himself into the top five or something. So yeah, I hope I hope he doesn't he doesn't stay down in those doldrums forever. Um, so Carl, I think we've we've covered everything we wanted to touch on this week. Is there any other topics that you wanted to to bring up before we wrap things up? Uh, we've got a few that I think we can save for future episodes because we're past an hour. So just excited that we were able to do this two weeks in a row. And hopefully the audio will be better this time. Yeah, I hope so too. One of the things on our, uh, on our outline for future weeks now is to talk about tennis movies, specifically Battle of the Sexes. And if Carl can get around to watching it, the, the Borg McEnroe movie as well. So listeners, if you've made it this far and you want to be particularly well prepared for maybe next week or maybe a future episode... Gotta get out those um, get out those MKV files and and watch your pirated copies of those movies. <laughs> well, I was about to say, listeners, if you know how to easily watch the movie, let me know. But I guess I should say, if you know how to easily and legally watch the movie, and I will pay to watch it, let me know. I also want to see the Showtime documentary about Nick Bollettieri. I don't know how much tennis is in it, and it's a documentary, so different different questions of depicting tennis. But I do want to see that as well. Okay, good. I didn't know about that one, so I'll, I'll try to check that out as well. I have fewer scruples about legal viewing, but hopefully the end result will be the same no matter what. So thank you, Carl, as always, for joining and sharing your tennis wisdom. Thank you, Jeff. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Hopefully we will see you next week. In any event, um, this wraps up episode 20.